You know, some of us at these times we have family members turn up. I, th- I believe my brother and his wife and five children are turning up sometime later today. I, um, they haven't been in Glads for so long. So it'd be great to have them. It's just a great time, isn't it? But you know, predominantly, of course, we have this weekend because we want to celebrate something that's a powerful truth in the Christian faith. Um, no, no other belief system in the world celebrates what we celebrate. And I want to tell you why. is because no other religion in the world has uh, a, a person that actually died and then rose again. That's pretty amazing. Uh, and that's the confession of the Christian faith, isn't it? The truth is um, uh, the empty tomb is a great, wonderful symbol of the, the Christian faith. But even greater is the empty cross. And uh, I want to just uh, read a passage. Well, not so much read it, but maybe just... Uh, uh, converse it to you and and, uh, we'll particularly major on a particular verse and this morning I wanted to take the thoughts from Matthew's gospel it's the very first book of the New Testament and uh, Matthew 27 and uh, it just says this 35 you you basically know uh, the story a lot of you but let me just quickly give you the version of it it just says in verse 35 they crucified him didn't they they crucified him it wasn't um you know, you could appreciate that that was the Roman um, model of those days. For those criminals, they really wanted to torment and execute, and uh, they, uh, they'd crucify them. The nails would be pierced through their wrists uh, and through their feet. Um, so that happened. Uh, of course, the soldiers then took Jesus' garments, and they, um, they thought, well, these garments are too good to throw away, and so they divided up the garments. They, they kind of threw the dice down and kind of gambled for who would get his garments. Um, uh, Then they sat down and they kept watch over him. It says in verse 36, 37, and they put a sign above above the cross and it says, uh, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. So they put that sign up there. Uh, It was almost an element of um, mockery, I suppose, in some ways. And then there were the two robbers who were also crucified on either side of Jesus. Um, of course, it was one robber uh, who was uh, kind of um, gave Jesus a mouthful and said, you know, save yourself and save me at the same time. And then there was the other robber, of course. And Matthew doesn't record this, but some of the other uh, gospel writers like um, uh, Mark and Luke and John recorded that uh, one of the, the other um, robber, of course, was uh, more um, gracious and said, you know, well, remember me, Jesus. And he said, you'll be with me in heaven today. That'd be a, that's an 11th hour rescue, isn't it? Um, that happened. And then, of course, those who passed by, it says in Matthew chapter 27, let me just adjust this a bit. Those who uh, passed by started to just throw accusations at Jesus and said, you know, you talked about destroying the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. Uh, People mocked him. Even the religious leaders of the day walked past and they said things like, save yourself. If you can't save yourself, you're you're supposed to be the king of Israel. Um, Come down off the cross and we'll believe in you. And, you know, you trust in God. Where's your God now? Will he deliver you off this cross? And, and, you know, you can appreciate that, that those are the very things that they're hard words. They're difficult words. You know, because the very fact is, you know, they said, you know, if, you're, if you really believe in God, let him save you. Well, of course he did. And God was his father. But, you know, it didn't, there wasn't the plan, was it, to save him right there and then off the cross. He didn't want to take Jesus off the cross. He wanted him to go through the process of the cross. And so we see um, a whole lot of things happen. And then in the sixth hour, which I believe is a, a possibly about midday, uh, there was total darkness on the earth. 
total darkness. It, it wasn't an eclipse of the sun. There wasn't some all of a sudden these dark clouds went over the sun. No, there was total darkness for three hours. And then, of course, at 3 p.m., um, uh, Jesus then made that statement, it's finished. And uh, he also made some other statements while on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. He, he made a lot of statements like that. There were seven in all. But here's one. It wasn't a statement. It was a question. Right at the end of Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew's uh, parable, uh, passage here in Matthew 27, verse um, 46. This is what he said. Um, basically, he said, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. I couldn't help but put this picture up today because <laughs> for every dog owner, there will be a tug on your heart. Uh, uh, don't, you, don't you just love the attitude of dogs? You, you leave them and they look longingly sometimes if they're a house dog out the window. When you come back, they always are there to want to just greet you. There's this, there's this, no, there's this unconditional love. There's a, they say, why did you leave me? But it's like they forget that. They never hold a grudge. And they come back and say, oh, it's so good to see you, as if you're never going to leave again. Never going to leave again. And yet, we leave again and they, and they probably go through a process of, they've forsaken me again. And yet you come back and they forget about it again. They're just so happy. But these words were Jesus. It was a question that, God, uh, that Jesus posed to his heavenly Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And I want to ask today why this question um, why this question? And to be totally honest about this question, it was, a, it was a rhetorical question. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? It's a question that you and I sometimes ask, but we really know the answer. We're lo looking for an answer. You know what I mean? It's like the mother in the shopping center who's got a, um, a four-year-old that's continually whining for ch chocolates and Easter eggs and chips and everything else, and she's pushing around the trolley, and she finally has had enough, and she says, you ask this rhetorical question, do you want me to smack you? Everybody, you know, she's not looking for an answer. She's just, she's just what she's doing is she's wagging it. She's, um, you know, flagging that if you continue this whinging, you know, there's going to be consequences. I'm going to just let go. You know what I'm saying? It's a kind of that rhetorical question that, you know, it's not looking for an answer, but we know that she's uh, warning the child. It's like when you're on the side of, a, uh, of the um, sports field and your team is losing and you say, why are they losing? What are they doing wrong? And you know the answer. It's just that you don't want someone to come up and ask you, well, I want to tell you, but you can see why they're doing wrong. It's just that you're, you're expressing your disappointment. And, and, and Jesus asked this question of his heavenly father. He knew the answer. Okay, He knew the answer. It was a rhetorical. God knew the answer. Jesus knew the answer. But Jesus asked it anyway. He, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In actual fact, it was he spoke it in some kind of Hebrew. And some of them misinterpreted it and said, oh, he's, he's calling out for Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament. And it was totally wrong. He was declaring these, these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and he, he was expressing something. So you've got to think about it. If, if he's asking a rhetorical question on the cross of God, why have you forsaken me? And he knows why God's forsaken him. And God knows why he's, he's abandoned his son. Uh, why was the question asked? Well, all the things that Jesus says on the cross. Do you know why? It's in, even in the Bible. It's for you and me. I don't know if you've seen it that way before. But these things that are written down and these questions that Jesus, as he nailed there between heaven and earth crucified, dying, bleeding, he asked this question because he, was, he knew it was an important question that, you know, 2,000 years later, we're going to read it and, and, and 
and hopefully understand it. And I want to just bring out the thought this morning around why Jesus had this question. Is that cool? Why, if, what does it mean to us today? If it wasn't for God, and it really didn't need to be asked, he, he, he put it in there and it was for us. What is it really saying to us today? And uh, of course, what is it meaning in regards to the whole thing that happened when Jesus died on a cross? Let me share with you this. The very first thing. Jesus asked the question because he wanted to help us understand that he was to take away what no one, no one else could ever take away for us. He could deal with something that no one else could deal in our lives. There was something that Jesus could do that no one else could ever do. No one else could ever do. No one would ever be able to. Not in the previous history to Jesus was able to do it. No lamb, no sacrifice was able to do it. Really, really. I mean, they did in God's eyes and the Old Testament principles, but no one in the future could ever do it. It had to be Jesus. It had to be the Son of God. And you know what that thing was that Jesus could do that no one else could do? It was take away. It was take my sin this morning. It was to take my failures. It was to take my guilt. It was to take my shame. It was to take everything that I really wouldn't want put on a screen and shown you that it's every he, he, he wants to take it and it's not just me it's you today he he can only he's the only one um you know as I was growing up I I had a dad that's always good um, um but I had a dad and I remember and the very fact that I can remember this story I was nine years of age means it's imprinted in my mind um but dad would come home from work maybe about five o'clock at night and he, he invented this little game with me that we would play. We had a ho- long hallway. Well, in hindsight, it wasn't so long. But as a nine-year-old, I thought it was massive. You know, I just it was, thought it was so long. And it was a carpeted hallway. And at one end, my dad would set up little figurines, soldiers, and little plastic bottles and blocks and everything. And, and, and he'd get me at the other end. And he'd, he, together, we'd lay on the floor and we'd get these tennis balls. And we'd roll them down and see how many we could, things we could knock over at the end of the hallway. And... Um, my dad invented all ways to do it. He would bounce it off the wall. He would bounce it on the ground. He'd just lob it. I mean, it was fantastic. I, you know, my thing is, was that significant? Well, for a nine-year-old, it was. Because I found out that my dad could only, I could only ever really play that game successfully with my dad. My, my sisters, they just couldn't get a grip of it. It just wasn't the same. They didn't know how to do it. You know, they... How could you miss everything at the end of the hallway when you've got walls and yet they seemed to, that's how they seemed to go? They missed everything. I thought, oh. My mum really wasn't interested, so that was fine. She was busy cooking. I understand that. But you know, it was something that was just between me and my dad. There's some things that I found that it was just between me and my dad and my life, and it was only my dad who could fulfill that function and part of my life. No one else could do it. And I want to tell you today that Jesus Christ is the one that can only do some things in your life. No one else can do them. It's his part. And on the cross, he played his part. Because on the cross, God abandoned him because of the sin of the world that was on his life. And as God looked at Christ and had to abandon him because of the sin of the world, because we serve a perfect God, a righteous God. I mean, let's think about it. We don't want a God that's dabbled in sin, do we? No, of course we don't. God is perfect in all his ways. And so he had every right to be righteous and look away and abandon Jesus because my filthiness and my sin was nailing Jesus to that cross. And I want to say that there's no one else like Jesus. You know, Jesus was the only one, in a sense, who could roll the ball down and hit the blocks down at that hallway. He was the only one, like my father, who was the only one who could do it for me. 
Uh, Jesus is the only one who can do it for us all. I hope you can understand that. Scripture actually says, John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't take away the joy of the world. He doesn't want to take away your hope of the, uh, in your life. He doesn't want to take away your family. He doesn't want to do it. He just wants to take away the sin, the, the, the yucky part of our life, the, the, in a sense, the spiritual cancerous part of our life. He wants to take it away. And there's a wonderful analogy, of course, because they say the Lamb of God, talking about the Old Testament way that they used to deal with sin and sacrifice lambs. Um, he took what he deserved. Uh, he took what we deserved on the cross. Would you agree? We have to understand something today. He just didn't die for us. He died because of us. Okay, John Stott says this, before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us, which is so true, isn't it? And the truth is, Romans uh, 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's very best for them. All. It, all means actually everyone, everyone. Us today, this world, we're all. If there was a perfect person in the world, um, you know, uh, that would be an incredible thing. But there's no perfect people. We've, we've just, aren't we? We're just people who've had God's love as Christians, God's touch, God's mercy, God's grace upon our lives to forgive us. And he, he wants to deal with our sin. And, you know, I, I find that in dealing with sin, we, we can seek to do all types of things other than um, accept Christ's offer to take our sin. I can, you know, and, and I've done this in the past, and I think we all have. Sometimes we deal with our sin. How we deal with it is we relocate the sin to someone else or something else, and we say, well, I'm not to blame. It's them that done it, and yet we really were involved. So we can try and relocate our sin. Sometimes we can try and reflect our sin. Well, you know, you know, I, um, um, yeah, 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 I got involved, but really they're the problem, or it's the problem, or the, you know, the devil made me do it. And we reflect what we did wrong, and we don't own up to it. Sometimes we understand what we've done, but we've just buried it. We try to bury their sin. Uh, we try to get rid of it. We try to kind of stamp it out, and yet we find that it doesn't happen. It's still there. It'll raise its ugly head sometime. And so I've discovered in life, I think we all can, that you can't relocate your sin. You can't reflect your sin. You can't bury your sin. I've discovered you can only dissolve your sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what you can do. You can dissolve it. He'll... he'll He'll consume it. He'll take it. He'll, it'll be dissolved. It's like that old Aspro clear you throw into a glass of water and you just see it fizzle away until it's gone, totally gone. It's white. It's clear. It, there's no sign of the aspirin anymore. It's like we give Jesus our sin. We ask him for forgiveness and he dissolves it. He, he, he says, no more. And don't go, you know, I'm going to throw it away as far as the east is from the west. Don't go looking for it anymore. It's finished. Don't go that, that way anymore. Always remember, I was... Um, Another incident, um, I was only nine years of age, um, and I was with my mate at the front of our house, uh, outside the front gate, and he had, my mate had a, um, a plastic dart gun, um, and, and it was these plastic darts, and we were sitting there talking and, and carrying on, and, and I didn't know my mate was about to do this, but a car went past, about traveling about 40 kilometers an hour, and as it went past, he just shot the dart at the car, and it was a perfect shot, it hit the driver's side window and we were going like yeah what a shot you know uh, brilliant we were pretty excited until the car 
pulled up and started to reverse back up the street. And we're like, we're in trouble. So we did what nine-year-old boys do, and we hid in our front yard behind a hibiscus tree. You know, they're pretty big, and we're hiding behind it. And the guy is hopped out of his car, and he's coming up the front driveway. Now, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm thinking, oh, no, he's going to discover where we are. And all. My dad is actually walking down the driveway just at that present moment to collect some mail. I thought, now I'm really in trouble. And as my dad and this man meet, they have a conversation. I don't hear all the words of the conversation. But, um, you know, uh, something happened in that conversation. And the man turned around after about two minutes, walked back down the hall, hopped in his car and drove away. My dad now walks back up the driveway. He knows because when he was walking down, he was going like, what are you guys doing? Anyway, he did. He, he was, and as he comes back now, he knows why we've been hiding. And I thought, we're really in trouble. I'm grounded for a year. He's going to take me. And, you know, not that I ever received too many smacks, to be honest. I was such a pretty good kid. But... Um, <laughs> I thought, you know, this is the time where he's really going to let loose. I'm going to feel the wooden spoon. You know, and I thought, man, I'm in trouble. I am deep yogurt, you know, right now. My dad walks up to us, and we crouch behind this hibiscus tree, and he looks at us, and, and it was like Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery, and Jesus just said, you know, is anybody left here to accuse you? And she goes, no. And Jesus just says to her, um, well, um, go and sin no more. And my dad come up and he says, don't do it again. And he walked off. And he never brought it up again. He never said anything about it. He never told my mother, praise God, <laughs> that we'd shot this guy with a dart. He never said a word. And I thought, you know what my dad did? He absorbed the anger of the gentleman. He took, he absorbed... And he absorbed the pen penalty, he absorbed the harassment and what the guy said, calmed him down, and the guy went again. He must have, he, he must have said something good. Um, he absorbed it. And as Jesus stands between heaven and, and, and heaven and hell today, not today, but that time on the cross, um, you know, he absorbed your sin. He took it. He dissolved it. It, it. All it takes is for us to accept that and tell him and receive him today and the action that he's done for us. I'm just so glad we have a God who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was for us to hear the reality that the truth is that only Jesus Christ could be the one to do what no one else could do. Here's the second thought this morning, and we'll move on with this. This is um, actually Colossians 2.14. I love this. He, this says on this first point, he canceled the record in the Message Bible. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I love that. That's the Bible paraphrased of Colossians 2.14. He canceled the record, nailed it. There's, we, he nailed our sin literally. Today we could give you a piece of paper and we could write all our, our failings and sins and guilts and we could come up to this cross and I don't think it would probably work, but we, if it was sticky paper, you could just stick it to the cross and you could say, hey, it's dealt with. But you know what? We don't have to do that because as we come to Christ in prayer and our heart and humility, he takes it anyway. He, you know, he's already nailed it to the cross. We don't have to revisit it, but we just need to, um, of course, continually keep short accounts with him. So here's the second thing. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you appreciate what he's, he's saying? Why have you forsaken me? It was for us to hear. 
And you know what? It was to help us understand that God turned his back on God turned his back on him so God would never turn his back on us. God would never turn his back on us. It says in Hebrews 13:5, for he himself said, I will never leave you nor what? Forsake you. Never leave you nor forsake you. There's a little boy here, I thought, looking out a window, and it really touched my heart, this picture, because um, about 15 to 20 years ago, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the time frames, but I, I remember the story so vividly. There, there, it was a gentleman, actually, used to, used to come to our church. I met him, first of all, um, at, he was a security guard at the power station in my early 20s when I used to work there. And then, I, and then he came to church and received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I was so excited about that. And one day in his little unit where he lived, um, I used to visit him. Pastor Malcolm used to visit him regularly too. Um, he told me his story. And his story went like this. Um, he grew up never knowing his dad. He just lived with his mum for a little while. And then he lived with his grandmother and then he went back to his mum. And at the age of four, his mum, they lived in Brisbane and his mum took him to a nice big building where a whole lot of other children were, and there were these lovely ladies. And uh, she said, um, and she put him there, and she said, um, stay here. That's all she said, stay here. And she walked off. And so uh, this man, um, as a little four-year-old, uh, he thought, well, mum will be back. And that day he had a great time, all these other kids to play with, uh, these lovely ladies who fed him lunch. And that afternoon he, he went to the window and he said he waited for his mum to return. She never came. So that night she, he slept there. So the next day he got up, he thought, you know what, mum will come today. And he got up and with expectation she never come. Six months later he's still waiting. He'd go to the window and wait, wait for his mum to come. She never came. Six years later, it says every now and then he would still go from that orphanage, uh, the main dining room, and he'd go to the window just to see if his mum, he was now 10 years of age, to see if his mum would come. She never came. At the age of 18, he, he, he still had the thought, would she come one day? And she never did. And then, of course, he was discharged, and he went on with his life and got a job, and he never met his mum. She never came. And I thought about that, and it, it, I mean, it broke my heart, and I tell you what, I was in tears as he was telling me this story. Um, and now I'm talking to him, he's a 55-year-old, and he's heavily medicated because of the pain and the struggle in his life about the loss of never, not just not knowing his dad, he just never saw his mum come back. His mum forsook him. Now, we don't know why his mum did that, so let's not judge her wrongly, but let's just, maybe there was desperate situations. I'm talking about the 1940s. And, of course, the place where she left him was an orphanage in Brisbane. And the precious lady were um, a bunch of wonderful nuns who looked after children. So, as we look at that story, we see that, um, thankfully, when God abandoned Jesus on the cross, he didn't do it forever. But the reason he did abandon him was so that he would never have to abandon us. We'd never have to go to a window and wait and say, will God ever be here today? We never have to ask the question, God, are you there? Because God says he never wants to leave us nor forsake us. You may say, well, that's a little difficult to grasp because I need a physical God. Well, sometimes that's what the body of Christ actually shows us, um, each other, what God's like to one another. But Jesus, of course, lived for 33 years and then he died. But thankfully, he sent God's presence through the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit never wants to leave us nor forsake us. The um, interesting thing is, if you look at the reality 
the Old Testament understanding of God's presence was, well, God is here, God is up on the mountain uh, with Moses, or God is in the temple at certain times. Uh, you know, God is in the pillar of cloud by day when they were, the Israelites were walking through the desert. Always at nighttime, he's in the pillar of fire. So there was an Old Testament understanding that God is actually only in certain places at certain times. Can we not take that attitude into our New Testament belief? Because it's never meant to be passed on, that thought, because God is not just every now and then. He's all the time through his presence, his power through the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe we can think, well, God, are you here today? And God doesn't kind of leave your life just because... You know, you registered a pretty bad sin on the, on the sin scale today. You know, he didn't all of a sudden say, well, I'm out of here. He doesn't leave. Just somebody said to me one day, you know, God leaves the car when I do this over the speed limit. Well, no, he's still there. Um, you need God when you're breaking the law. <laughs> you know, God's not going to leave your life just because of your failings. In actual fact, he wants you to draw near to him at those times. God never wants to leave us. And we see that God abandoned Jesus so that We'd never have to be abandoned by God ourselves. Know that sense or that feeling. You know, um, we need to understand it's not a matter sometimes of God not being there. And we sense, well, where are you, God? You don't seem to be here. Sometimes it's just a matter of us um, stop pushing him away or stop walking away. Because God's presence. The psalmist says, where can I flee from your presence, O God? If I go up to the heights or the depths or the highest mountain, you are there. And it is true, isn't it? He's always, his presence is there. It's just that sometimes we've got to acknowledge him and invite him. He's always there knocking at the door of our heart. It's just whether we accept and receive him into our lives. Let's look at another thing, the last thing this morning, about God's, um, when Jesus declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the third thought this morning about this question is to help us, it helps us understand that he had, Jesus identifies with our loneliness and rejection, okay? John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. In other words, he identifies with us. He identifies with your pain. He identifies with joys. He identifies with everything about your life because he too has faced what we have faced. And Jesus at this time he faced rejection and loneliness. Think about it. He watched in silence as his disciples ran away, all except one, and then that one denied him. Um, Jesus withstood the beatings at the hands of the soldiers and didn't say anything. He did not retaliate when insults were hurled at him as he was nailed to that cross. Um, he didn't scream when the nails went through his wrists, folks. Um, but when God had to forsake Jesus, that was more than he could bear. And that's why he declared that statement. And, 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 and while Jesus knew that God wouldn't answer him because this is what he had to go through. And Jesus knew that he knew why God was doing this. He still said it. And the reality was he showed us his humanity. He showed us that the relationship between him and his father was paramount. He didn't get upset and all those other things happened to him. But when God had to abandon him because of our sin, man, that really did crush his heart for a moment. So, and you could appreciate at that very moment what we call the Trinity, what we call the three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Did you ever think about it? It was, fine. It was broken for that moment. Because Jesus himself said that God and Father and I are one. 
Well, not at this moment they weren't because sin separated them, our sin. See, Jesus had even these people around the foot of the cross. He had the soldiers and he had other people. And yet, when God, when God abandoned him, that's when he really felt lonely. Even though he had people there, he felt lonely. He felt discouraged. And you know, Jesus, through his lifetime while he was here, he felt hungry. He, he was sleepy. He was tired. Um, he understands even when we pray in anger and out of frustration. And he smiles, I think, when, when we confess our weariness and our sin to him and he receives us. So because um, uh, in the single most important act of, of his life, his crucifixion, he says, you know what? I feel abandoned. He shows us something incredibly important. He shows us his uh, incredible humanity and he relates to us today. And uh, he became flesh and he dwelled among us and he walked the earth. Um, you know, it would have been nice if maybe we were there. Ever thought about that? Well, God, why wasn't I born in the time of Jesus' walk? That would have been incredible. But you know what? The people, when they were walking with Jesus, a lot of them didn't know what they had. They didn't realize that the Savior, you know, they, that's why they ultimately crucified him. So I'm kind of glad, in a way, that I live in this generation and this era because, you know, I have this understanding in God's presence with, through the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing, and can we have the musicians just come back this morning? That would be great. One John 14 just doesn't say that he became flesh and dwells among us, but he says he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Can you just grasp that for a moment? He was full of grace and he was full of truth. Jesus has experienced all that we've experienced and will, ex and ex and will ever experience. And he knows how to apply his grace. He had great grace on the cross. He showed great restraint on the cross. He showed great uh, ability to handle the most excruciating, humiliating time of his life. He came through. Don't you think he could help you face your time of need? You face your struggle? And I want to say, maybe instead of running away from him in times of need or ignoring him in times of need, thinking how, think about how it's possible he could help you. Think about that Jesus says, run into me. Cast all your cares upon me, Peter says about Jesus, for I care for you. And you know, the reality is, um, I have grace for you. Do you know what grace is? It's, it's guidance and it's mercy. I have guidance and mercy for you in those times of need. I have hope and help for you in those times when you struggle. Could we just stand this morning as we, we're going to finish in a moment of this song. I wonder if today that you're here, and I want to just say this, and maybe um, you could say, if you would like to join me, I would just love to pray for you where you stand today. And if you, if you just want to say, just include me in the prayer. I don't even want you to pray. I just want to pray for you today. But you want to say, um, you know what? I just need to acknowledge Jesus in a fresh way today. Maybe you've never acknowledged him personally in your lives. Never, maybe you have a belief, but you've never personally brought it into your heart and say, you know what? I want to be a believer and be called a Christian. I want to be more than just a person of knowledge because God, 
God just doesn't want you to study him. He wants you to know him. And I think it's important that today we just take a moment to refresh maybe that commitment or response to him. And if you've never responded today to Jesus Christ, I'd love to just pray for you where you are today. Maybe today you acknowledge that you just need to say yes again to him and put him first in your life. And I want to take this moment just to invite you. And could I want you, is it, could we just close our eyes for a moment? And could you raise your hand? And I'll just pray a prayer if you're here today and just say yes to Jesus Christ or just yes. That's what I need to do. Anybody? Anybody want to receive? Thank you. I see that hand. You can put that down. Well, let me just, other, that other hand there, I just see that. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for those They've just raised their hand today. That's a special moment. That's an acknowledgement of their need of you. And I ask that you would very much continue to reveal yourself to them. Father, that they would come to an understanding that as they confess you and as Lord and Savior and believe in their heart that, God, you accept and receive them. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done on the cross. Help us, those people who have raised their hand, to understand the full weight of how our sin put you there, but at the same time, you forgive us and you take what was our penalty and you receive that penalty and we receive the pardon. Thank you for that today, Father. And Father, I ask that God, we would be people, all of us today, that would continue to realize and understand of your great, wonderful act that you've done for us. And what we call Good Friday, Lord, but it was good for us. And even though it was 2,000 years ago, thank you that you make it real today. In Jesus' name. Amen? Come on. How about we just sing this one last song today before we dive off into this day, maybe with family, friends, or whatever it may be.